Why exactly do startups fail? What is the best pathway for Gen Z to overcome the forces of automation? How do you even take care of your mental health when building a startup? All of these questions and more will be discussed in this 63rd edition of the Gen Z Diplomat Podcast with Eric Grafstrom. To support this podcast, please subscribe to our YouTube channel, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and follow our Spotify page. And now, here's Eric Grafstrom. All right. Thank you, Eric, for being here. Good to be here, Ayush. Thanks for the time. So, first of all, I think the biggest question on everybody's mind when it comes to this area is why do startups fail? Well, you know, it's 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 a great question, and and I think everyone has an opinion. Um, there there isn't one reason, but I you know, in my experience, I've worked with dozens of venture back startups and bootstrap startups over my career. I think there's three areas where I often see patterns. And uh, again, this is from my experience. There's probably things that I may be missing. Uh, one, one, I think, is, is, is not talked about enough, which is, uh, are you building a product or are you building a business? Uh, and I'll come back to these. Two is, is sometimes there's just simply self-inflicted wounds. And, and the third is, is time. And, and it, time can also be viewed as money. Uh, when I talk about building a product versus a business, you know, especially if you're going to raise money from investors, but um, even if you're bootstrapping this, you have to know that you're on a pathway to build something that not just people will want to use, that people need, you want to look more at it as what are the things people need to use and, you know, becomes part of their their day-to-day, week-to-week, and are willing to pay for. Um, now, whether you're monetizing through advertising, whether you're doing the premium model or uh, more of an e-commerce business, but you really have to focus on what is the business value there? And I've seen this, you know, mistake where somebody builds something, whether it's building for themselves because they they have experienced a certain problem or see a potential opportunity. You really have to kind of look at this as, is this a business? Is this a profitable business? Uh, self-inflicted wounds, you know, I, I think especially for those that, that come from more of a technical uh, or creative background, aren't always looking at some of the mechanics and just simple financial acumen is so important. Um, you know, take a, a, a quick mini course on you know on how to use Excel and run things like a, a PL statements and a balance sheet. You don't have to be an expert. It doesn't even have to be pretty, but just what are the basic mechanics of what does it cost to start the business? What does it cost to run the business? And then are you generating enough revenue to make this not only worth your time, but to make this a profitable business? Uh, it's a cliche. Time is money. I think oftentimes people run out of time and, and at the same time, they're running out of money. So, you know, th- those are three areas that I would you know recommend your your listeners think about. And is, is there kind of whether they're at the very beginning or maybe you're in the middle of their startup journey is to taking a step back and, you know, are you building a business? Are you making sure that you're not, you know, creating any self-inflicted wounds? And do you have enough time to kind of figure this out? For sure. Um- just before I ask the next question, it would be helpful if you could give a, a quick background to the listeners on how you even got in this into the industry and, and yeah, what your, yeah. uh, your years of experience was like. Sure, sure. So, um, you know, look, I've had a very fortunate pathway. I, uh, you know, I graduated with a journalism degree from college and spent a little bit of time working in politics before a friend called me and, and invited me to come down to uh, this little warehouse in Dallas, Texas. And 
Um, they needed someone to start selling at the time was was webcasting, which really didn't exist to businesses. And that company became Broadcast.com, which a lot of people may know was started by Mark Cuban from Shark Tank and the Dallas Mavericks. So I, I was I was early on in this journey and got bit by the entrepreneurial tech startup bug then. And, you know, it was hard. Uh, you know, it, it, it sounds good because now, you know, you can look back and see the success. But, it, you know, being in that position early in my career where a lot of friends were going off to get, you know, MBAs and law degrees or working with successful companies. And here I was working on something that no one really thought was going to succeed. It really sounded like a stupid idea to broadcast audio and video when people were still on dial-up modems. But that started me on a whole journey that took me overseas, worked in London for a few years with Yahoo, moved out to Silicon Valley with Yahoo, and then you know, grew from a salesperson into a business development executive and then into operating roles, left Yahoo, and, and then worked with about, oh, I'm going to guess, 20 to 30 venture-backed startups in varying capacities as both a fractional and a full-time executive. Uh, today, I'm the founder of Exit Guide, which is an M&A platform for Main Street businesses, and we'll probably get into more of that later. But a lot of very frontline experience of the ups and downs of the entrepreneurial journey. Just, um, you know, I work with a lot of founders, and what I tell them before we get, you know, into a working relationship is whatever mistake you've made, I've I've either made it or cleaned it up. So don't worry about it. We can get through this. For sure. That's that's very good advice, and you know it's clear that you've had not just like a bulk of experience would be an understatement. Which leads me to the next question. Um, it's kind of contrary or contradictory to the last one I, I asked, which was why startups fail. But with your massive amount of experience, you're probably very attuned to just looking at a startup or looking at a business plan, and then kind of like getting a sense of if this is going mm -hmm. to succeed or not, and so. The next question is, what do you see instantaneously that leads you to believe that the startup would not be successful? Like what, what, what markers or what marker gives you that kind of, yeah, this is not going to be successful, you know, stay away. Sure. And I, and I think it really, it combines those, um, you know, first two things that I mentioned, which is, are you building a product or are you building a business? Um, you know, one of the, the, the things that I tend to say, which I, I tell people is a bit of tough love. If I come in as a, as a startup coach or a CEO coach is no one cares if you can build something, you just get no credit for it. And it's a hard thing because you make work, you know, days, weeks, months, you know, sometimes even years to create something. And it could be a beautiful product. It could be something that works really well. And, and, and perhaps that is something to be proud for proud of. But, you know, when it comes to creating a business around that raising venture capital or from angel investors, no one cares. Um, and, and, and that may sound harsh, but I mean that in the sense of, you know, you have to make sure that what it is that you're building is actually going to turn into a profitable business. Mm -hmm. And spending too much time on building something that is not going to generate revenue or where you're not getting, you know, customer feedback, uh, where you're not out trying to sell this to see if you can actually, you know, create a sustainable growing revenue line um, it, it is part of a self-inflicted wound um, because you can get caught up in 
you know, spending, you know, long hours, seven days a week in, in, in the work it takes to launch something. But if it's something that is just okay and generates, you know, meaningful, sustainable, profitable revenue versus something that, you know, may have this kind of magical experience that you and your colleagues or your peers and your cohort feel is amazing, but no one wants to buy, you know, focus on incremental steps. So um, it's a journey. There's no such thing as a one and done launch. And make sure you're building a business is 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 the key. I've seen it all too often where people have spent too much time and money on building a product as opposed to building a business. And it's it's really important for people to hear that because when they think of startups, obviously people think of hard work and you know yep. long hours, eighty hour, one hundred twenty hour work weeks, and all of that. But they do assume. I think a lot of people assume that success if you put in the work and you put in the hours and you know you have like that brilliant idea the the next facebook idea that it'll just work out and so giving people a reality check is is not just important but it's necessary for you know a lot of maybe confused particularly gen z who may maybe looking at the startup environment and saying you know i could do this i have the work ethic i have the idea just just like reorienting them so the next question kind of again, is contradictory, is, is there actual failure in the startup environment or do you fail forward? You know, I'm a big believer in, in failure all too often has a negative connotation and, and understandably why. Sure. Uh, you, you know, you have to assume that things will go wrong. And uh, so, so I, you know, I'd like to say no. And, and I think I think to your point, failing forward, if you've if you've learned something, then you know you're going to take that forward. Especially if you're early in your career, if you're in the first two, three, five, ten years of your career, you know it should be a bit of a badge of honor. Now, of course, no one sets out to fail, but if you're growing from that experience and you're taking something away, as long as you're not replicating the same mistakes out of just you know, being a little bullheaded with you know the the decisions that you're making. Um, no, I I don't I don't think there is. These are just opportunities to learn and grow. And and it's tough. It's tough to to to, to admit that something may not be working out and have to to fold it up and and move on. But it is really a journey of being an entrepreneur uh, and not just one entity that you start early and have this massive success. How do you segment out? A mistake versus something that will help you in the future. So you've started, <laughs> yeah. You began a startup and it's failed. How do you know what to reincorporate and what to leave out in your next venture? Well, I, I think some of that has to do, quite honestly, in, in a personal style of learning. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think some people are, are more auditory, some people are more, um, you know, visual, some, you know, experiential. And I think your learning style really is something that is under uh, undervalued or, or it's not talked about enough, which is, you know, what's the way that you learn? And, you know, I think one is after you have, have had to maybe, you know, uh, close something down, one of the most important things is to give yourself a little bit of time. I don't care if it's a few days. I don't care if it's a few weeks. Um, it could be months. I, I think taking too long off is 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 a bit of a challenge. Now everybody's situation is is entirely different. But give yourself a little bit of time. Uh, you know, if, 
for, for lack of a better description, I, I've, I've not come up with a better terminology, but I say to get the goo out. And by the goo, I mean, just, you know, sometimes it's even when you're just leaving a job, but you know, if you've had something that you've had to close up, give yourself a little bit of time to process that out. And then when you go back, I think that there's, you know, you can codify this, whether it's writing something down or maybe recording your thoughts, you know, onto your phone. Uh, but I think it's important for you to get perspective also from a couple of people that really trust and care about you and, and get their, their hard feedback. Now, ideally, you get that when things are really, you know, when you're having some challenges. But I think it's important to kind of, you know, go away and, and look at two things. One is what are the things that didn't go well? But, but more importantly from that, what are the things that went right? As a startup and as a founder, your job is to surround yourself with people that complement your skill set, your work style. And so rather than focus just on the negatives and say, okay, um, I'll take myself as an example. Uh, you know, I'm great with, with identifying market opportunity. I'm terrible with visual design. So I really have to pull in people who are great at, at taking, you know, the idea for solving a, a, you know, potential, uh, you know, problem in the marketplace. But how do you visualize that from a product perspective so that it's intuitive and easy and presents to the user? And so, you know, understanding where, you, you know, you can complement yourself by bringing in people who are far more talented and experienced in a certain area, I think it's one of the biggest lessons you have to take away when something doesn't work out rather than try to solve this all on your own. And, you know, one, one question that's always kind of befuddled me is when do you know that you failed? Because in the startup environment, it's constantly, you keep going, like the uh, old Walt Disney story where, you know, he kept on going and maybe the 292nd, second you know, <laughs> you know, after that, yeah. he got the, he got the, he got, you know, a yes. So when sure. do you know that you failed and you need to get the goo out and then restart with yeah. something else? Yeah. Well, let me start with saying something that, that I think is fortunately in the past few years become more uh, commonplace in terms of discussion, whether it's through Twitter or just out in, in, in startup communities, which is, you know, there is no business that is worth your physical and mental health in relationships with people that love you and you love. There just isn't. And and so um, burnout is talked about and, and in some ways maybe it's an overused term, but it's very real. But at the same time, if you find yourself in a situation where, you know, relationships with people that you care about and or your physical and mental health are are starting to uh, you know take a hit, it is it is time to re-examine because what's the point? of of you know making something successful if it's at the cost of you know your your whole reason for being uh, i think the other part of it is uh you know and it's tough to have someone who's an investor but to have at least two or three people who put you in front of any business opportunity in terms of the advice that they'll give you i've had you know very good fortune of people that you know i can go to and kind of say okay look i need an hour of your time and when they're looking at where I am, they can ask a lot of business questions, do a standard uh, kind of assessment of, you know, metrics and things like that. But they can also tell uh, where I am. I, I, I had a, a very close friend of mine ask me, you know, a question, you know, a few years ago. And, and he said, do you still feel like, you know, this needs to exist in the world? 
And the question he was asking me was not an uncommon question that someone would would ask a an entrepreneur. But he knows me, he knows my family, he knows me personally. And the, the question he was asking was much deeper than, you know, how's the business coming along? And, you know, one, I think, you know, if, I, if, if he believed that this was not worth continuing because of the expense and the toll it would take on me, or it was just simply not going to work, he, w- he would tell me. And I know that I wouldn't necessarily take that personally in a negative sense. I would take it personally in a positive sense in that he, you know, he is looking out for me as a human being. And I think that's very important is to have, you know, at least two or three, you don't need five, you don't need 10, you don't need to talk. I mean, talking to a bunch of people to kind of get their feedback on a product or maybe a go-to-market strategy, it makes all the sense in the world, but you need to have at least two or three people. Family's tough because there's, there's, you know, a little bit of a, 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 there's a lot of bias there, but having, you know, two or three people that will, speak to you both from a business perspective and speak into your heart and say, Hey, look, I'm not sure this is worth it, or I'm not sure this is going to work out. I could be wrong. Um, I think you got to be able to kind of check your own gut feel on this with a couple of, of, of very close people. But what happens if you don't have those people? I mean, in, in today's age, we're always seeing news articles and um, you know, so, uh, videos and all of that on we're, we're more isolated than ever. And so it might be easy for someone to just put their head down and think of an idea, think that they have a business plan and just go forth. And maybe they get a little bit of success at the start and maybe not, but they won't have that social um, judgment, if for lack of better words. Sure. They, they won't be able to rely on those two to three close friends, relatives to, to put them in check. And so yeah. for maybe the, the listener out there that is putting their head down and constantly working and doesn't think of failure as an option, how do you um, self-inspect yourself? How do you realize that maybe I should take a couple of days and rethink my strategy and then go from there? Like, How do you get the confidence to do that? Yeah, in 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 I think it's a very personal thing. So one, you know, if you're early in your entrepreneurial journey, it's never too late to try to kind of build that sense of community. There are a lot of tools that are out there. You know, if you're going to make this thing work, you're going to have to reach out cold to investors, to customers, to potential people you're going to hire. Reaching out and and asking for uh someone to be a part of a community is or to join their community you know, make that just like you're planning on doing, you know, user interviews or whatever it may be. But the the question I, I, I would ask, I've asked myself or when I've gone into uh, businesses where I've joined in as an executive and a coach is, you know, you have to, to, to look at two aspects of it. Are you still motivated by the opportunity or are you more motivated by your solution? Hmm. And, and the difference is, like, if if you're saying my dream ultimately was to solve this problem, create this market opportunity this way versus, well, maybe the way I tried it for a year or six months or two years isn't working, but that's okay because I still see this market opportunity or this problem set is a massive opportunity and and I'm feel so passionate about that that I'm willing to 
rethink my approach. And that may be a whole new product strategy. It may be bringing in other co-founders. It may be joining another team. And that to me is one of the big differences, which is, you know, have you personalized this so much that you feel like you're the only person that can solve it in a certain way that you come up with? That's a very dangerous position to put yourself in because you better darn well hope you're right. Um, and if you are right, you're probably lucky um, because, you know, rarely, if if ever, does anyone get it right in the first try. But if you're willing to bring other people along in that journey, you're willing to try different things and put your ego in check and put the opportunity ahead of your own personal view in, in, in your ego, you know, it is probably worth sticking around in, in, in doing something. But with the big caveat I said earlier, which is nothing is, is worth the expense of your men mental, physical health and relationships with those that you care for. Just, just to touch on that point, it's, it's a very interesting and, you know, important thing to, to take into account, which is, are you holding up your, your life when it comes to a startup? You know, I, I never thought of failure as something where if my relationships fail, then I've failed. I always thought of failure as, you know, if I'm not making money, then that's a failure. You know, and it's, it's, it's good to, to take yourself out of that hole and take away the blinders that comes with building something and to think about, you know, you know are, is my life as a human healthy? Yeah, and 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 there there there's I'm I'm not going to get this totally right, but the spirit of it is 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 correct. There was a movie a couple of years ago about um, you know soldiers during World War II who were going in and risking their lives and the lives of others to save works of art in Europe. And um, you know, it, someone will Google this and figure it out. But one of the questions was asked, which is, why are we doing this? We're not saving people's lives and, and, you know, we're not pushing the enemy back necessarily. But really, it begged the question of, well, if we're not willing to risk saving art, which represents, you know, humanity's progress and all the things that art really represents, well, then what, what are we fighting for to begin with? And so it really asked this you know, deeper question about, you know, purpose. And so as startups can be all consuming. It can be a complete and total temptress. And, and you have to, you know, know where you're drawing the line between is your commitment and hard work to see something succeed kept in balance for you're going to be on this planet for hopefully, you know, several decades. Is your purpose for doing this driven by an ego to check a box and, impress a certain group of people or is it really you're trying to do something which is your own talents and your own drive to create something that you think should exist in the world to make it a better place sure and i think we'll definitely get into this uh egotistical strive for building yeah. the next yeah. and all of that, which is absurd but unfortunately that's the world we live in totally so, right I guess we'll leave failure for that for that section and get into something a little, okay. a little more different. But so in at the beginning of the year, you know, Silicon Valley Bank collapsed. Mm -hmm. and this had a massive impact on the startup industry, um, and also massive psychological impact on people who yeah. were thinking about, you know, yeah. building something and you know, wondering where the f am I going to get money now? So yeah. Uh, should we be wary of startup investing with the Silicon Valley bank collapse and 
you know, the other news articles of startup funds drying up or investing funds drying up? What are your thoughts on this? I mean, yeah, but, you know, what else are you going to go do? Um, without totally dating myself, but dating myself, you know, I, I started working in the Internet space in, in the mid-90s. No one knew, right? I mean, Netscape was was the dominant browser. Microsoft had not even launched Internet Explorer, which probably two-thirds of your listeners are going to say, what the heck is that? Uh, you know, Yahoo had just started. So we saw a bust in 2000. We saw the you know financial crisis in 2008. We saw another course correction in 2022. And, you know, th there's probably something else that I'm missing. But there are cycles. I think I think tech has a a more volatile cycle than perhaps other industries because of some of the the trends and the hype that's around it. I look, we we should fully expect. I don't know whether it'll be in three years, five years, or eight years, but there will be another course correction in this space. If you are going to hop in the train of trying to be an entrepreneur. Uh, no one can really predict where the market is going to go uh, because in some cases, startups might be counter to what the overall macroeconomic conditions are. Uh, you know, we, we saw during the pandemic, so many people were losing their businesses and struggling yet, uh, especially e-commerce businesses and other internet-based businesses were really thriving because they were serving, you know, a need that, that, you know, really was becoming even, you know, more compelling as, as people were, were, were locked down into their homes. Um, you know, so I, I mean, should you be more concerned? Yeah, I'd be more concerned in the sense of that's the environment in which we are, but it's also probably a good reality check in a lot of things that were hyped, you know, have come back crashing back to earth. And that's generally speaking, healthy for the overall market but at the same time as a relation what should you do for your own personal startup if you're building a business it's going to take you at least five to ten years to go build that business there's going to be these swings in the marketplace between you know where you are today and where things will be in five to ten years if you're in this for the next you know one to two years because you think that you're going to time the market you know, maybe you're a genius and, and you figured something out that the rest of us have not, but you really can't let those things dictate what you're going to do on a day-to-day -day basis other than, hey, look, if this is an environment that is going to be tougher for me to raise in, I need to take that into account when I look at it operating my business as far as spend and growth and experimentation goes. I just want, I just want to touch on one thing that you, kind of, you said that kind of freaked me out was it takes five to ten years to build a business. Sure. You know. All of the Gen Z I've talked to, oh, after two years, you know, it's going to be profitable. It's going to be this. It's going to be that. And again, I don't think my generation has a really good understanding of what it takes to build a business and gain money and uh, gain investor money and, you know, become profitable. But speaking of gaining, uh, you know, money from VCs or angel investors, what's a good strategy for this? What have you seen uh, that is correct, that is uh, very innovative in the in uh, getting investment sure. money? And what is just a complete turnoff? Well, uh, you know, one of the things that I would say at this stage in my career, 
um, seen both uh, su success and, and mistakes. Focus on building a business that does not require venture capital and you will attract venture capital. Now, that isn't 100% true. If you're you know, building a more traditional business and you know, the, the, there's a, maybe a bit of a cap in terms of you know, how much this can grow, but generally speaking, if, if you, the requirement you know, for your business to continue to grow and find product market fit requires uh, excessive amounts of venture capital, you, you probably are setting yourself up for um, the, for failure. Uh, you know, I'll give you an example. I, I'm not sure the exact numbers, but Andrew Levy, who, who's the founder of Box Group, you know, he probably made, from what I understand, and again, someone should check this. I'm not going to get this exactly right. You know, fifteen to twenty million dollars on the IPO. That's crazy. It, and so here's an insanely talented human being who I, I mean, I just, he, he is smarter and more talented than, than I would ever dream to be. I have tremendous respect, but here's someone who took so much dilution along the way. And so, you know, if you're building a business that is, is, doesn't require venture capital, but has the opportunity for explosive growth, you will attract the money that you need. And then you have the optionality to take it. Uh, you know, so you don't want to follow trends. You don't want to necessarily invest based off hype. You want to bring people into the fold that are going to help you grow your business. And you want to protect yourself from actually, you know, requiring that money to keep yourself alive. How do you know whether you should take it or you should not take it? How do you make that decision? You know, one of the, the, the I, I think the most important question every founder should ask, and, I, and I've said this a hundred times, and I hope people really take this to heart. If you have somebody who's willing to write you a check, one of the, the most important question in, in my experience is to ask them about a time when a portfolio company that they worked directly with had a major challenge or crisis and what that individual investor did to help them through it all money spends the same everybody loves to retweet loves to give you kudos and loves to brag about when things are going well it's natural but at the same time inherently there will be several moments of crisis in your startup what you want to find and identify when you're getting ready to, to accept you know, money from someone is, will they be passive? And, and passive is okay, right? It's a little bit of no harm, no foul. Um, will they be toxic? Meaning, are they going to continue to try to drive your product roadmap with their own ideas? Uh, will they um, you know, belittle or chastise you or become just so negative when when things aren't going well that they add a crisis on top of another crisis or is this someone who's going to step in on your worst days or in one of your most difficult challenges and say hey look i got you this is serious this may be an issue um, but we've been through this before we've got your back and we're going to help you through this through resources through planning through uh, maybe it's additional capital, but if someone's going to come along and get you those negative situations, so it's one of the most important things that I tell people to ask is, 
you know, you got to make sure that that you understand, you know, are they passive? Could they potentially be toxic? Which means don't <laughs> get into that relationship. Uh, or, or is this someone, if you ask that question, are they going to respond in a way of, actually, it's a very insightful and good question. Let me tell you about a situation. In fact, I have a founder that you can talk to about how my firm and I or my team and I, you know, help get them through that particular situation. How common is the latter type of investor? Is, is, is that, <laughs> are they the needle in the haystack or are they the majority? I mean, I think if I'm being candid, I would say that, you know, 70% are probably in that kind of very, you know, passive to somewhat helpful. And that doesn't mean that they, they don't want to, but I think something that, that it's hard for, for entrepreneurs to get early in their, their, their entrepreneurial journey is, you know, just the sheer volume of inbound traffic. When you have money to invest in a in either you know a good market or a bad market, when you have money to invest, you have so much opportunity coming to you that it, it literally is like a tidal wave. So it's almost impossible to keep up and, and be thoughtful because you know investors are raising money for their fund. They're trying to keep LPs happy. They're trying to deal with their existing portfolio, and then they're also out trying to find new investments. Uh, so I, I, you know, assume 70% or somewhere between passive to distracted and it's going to be tough for them to keep up. I think there's a, a, you know, it's reasonable to think that, that maybe another 10% out there are toxic and, uh, there's a variety of reasons for that. There's probably a whole lot of psychology and you know, psychiatry that goes into, you know, why that isn't who the, who those people are, but it's important to, to ask around and not just blindly assume that a great name on the door is the best money you can take. And then I think there's another five to 10%. I think, you know, most, but not all come from an entrepreneurial background where they've been in your shoes before. Um, not always the case. So I don't want to, uh, you know, suggest that people who've not been an operator, but come from a more traditional investing background. But I, I, I you know, it's, it's, you know, maybe 10 to 15% of the overall market is is probably that you know those people who really go through it maybe maybe 20 percent. i don't think it's a majority and i think the reason why it's not a majority is for very good reasons uh but you know having passive investors versus those that will really work and come alongside you is really what you're looking for chances are you're not going to have a cap table full of people who are in this 10 to 20 percent that are going to be extremely helpful it's totally okay it's it, it, if you have a mix of you know, one out of three is is really going to you know come in and work hard for you, but the other are are just simply passive, and they'll make it an introduction when they can, when they can or when they have time. But you know, are going to be passive. That's that's pretty normal. Kind of a geopolitical question, but is America still the best place to get investment money from? I've heard hints of China, of India, of Saudi Arabia. Is do you have any thoughts on this? Should someone that's attempting to build a startup just look at America or should they look at other countries as well? Well, you know, I think that the, one of the wonderful things that's happened over the past couple of years is, you know, and we still have a long way to go, but um, entrepreneurship and raising money from, you know, institutional investors has opened up both for people geographically speaking, from socioeconomics and all, you know, different races. And I, you know, it's it's a move in the right direction. I think we still have a, a, a long way to go. 
if you have a network that is trusted and known from a country outside of where you're running your business, and that's a network that you can rely on, and that is indeed a helpful and or passive investor, absolutely, you know, go with the people where you know that they are in your corner. So if you know you're going to get somebody who's extremely helpful, you know, maybe they're outside of North America, maybe they're in Europe or Latin America or parts of Asia, by all means. That being said, understand that there are things within your control and those are things without that are outside of your control. And when you're talking about countries like China or Saudi Arabia, um, we as, as entrepreneurs and as citizens do not have control or insight into broader political and, and economic conditions that could be impacted um, by things, you know, completely and totally out of our control. And so, uh, you know, is it possible you could find yourself working with great investors in a country that, you know, suddenly, you know, political leaders, you know, either there, here, wherever it may be, make a decision that limit your ability to grow into a particular market or, or you know, get funds from a particular market? You need to be mindful of that. It, it's not, you know, those citizens are not always representative of, of their government, but we certainly are impacted by the decision that, that our political leaders can make. And uh, you need to go in wise, eyes wide open when, when that comes in, you know, to, to taking money for sure. Is Where is the best place for anybody in America to get investment money from? Is it still Silicon Valley? I've heard hints of Austin, Texas. What, sure. Where where are the poles? Uh, where where are the centers of in investment money in America right now? Well, you know, bar none, Silicon Valley still, you know, from just dollars invested and concentration of capital, just the numbers are are still. I mean, it's still you know twenty x a place like Austin, Texas, where I live. I spent seventeen years in Silicon Valley. Uh, you know, LA, New York have, have certainly, you know, risen. Austin is emerging on the scene. But if you look at the, the concentration, the footprint of investors, uh, you know, outside of Silicon Valley, major markets, whether it's, you know, Toronto, Chicago, New York, uh, you know, they're still growing. Uh, you know, it, it depends on the stage in which you are. And I think it depends on the sector. And so, you know, depending on what industry you're in, you know, you may find angel investors in your backyard. And if if those are people that are coming from, say, they understand real estate, but they don't understand tech, but you're starting a you know real estate technology company, then, you know, go where the money is, go where the people that are going to help you. Those early dollars are, are, you know, important, but the the network that people will bring. So you may find that you have angel investors or seed or pre-seed investors that are very sophisticated and knowledgeable about a very niche marketplace or about an industry that that is outside of say ai or traditional SaaS. so um you know things have changed so much i mean i i've raised money where where over the past couple of years there's plenty of investors i've never even met in person and it is the world that we're living in so um I think it's fantastic. I think it's it's great. Silicon Valley still remains a bit of a heavyweight, but um, even people who represent Silicon Valley firms are living in places outside of Silicon Valley, and 
you know, I, I think the whole idea of, of investors telling you needed to move to the Bay Area in order for your startup to succeed has, has kind of fallen by the wayside, which is completely and totally legitimate and fantastic. You don't have to be there. If you want to be there, that's great. But you don't have to live where your investors are either. Sure, sure. Yeah, it is It is important. to. I think the best business is still done in person, but it's also, um, you know, we are living in times where you don't necessarily need to be in person um, to conduct the best business. Agreed. Um, or at least maybe in the metaverse, maybe that'll, that'll change. <laughs> uh, well, we'll see. I, 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 look, I think you can make a lot of progress. Nothing does uh, replace that, that, you know, personal interaction. And I'm a big believer in that. But at the same time, um, one of the benefits I, I think I see is, you know, you can, you don't have to wait three weeks for that in-person meeting to make progress. You can do a couple of preliminary calls or meetings via Zoom and still make forward progress. Now, maybe you need to meet in person to close the deal or to continue to build a long-term relationship where you trust each other and can get through difficult times together. But it's no longer this gatekeeper of, well, until I sit down with him or her in a physical in a room, you know, and physically meet face to face, you know, we're no longer relying on that to, to you know, to slow us down. See, but you, you touched on something very interesting. There's a there's a an underlying philosophy there of still meeting in person, and it seems like that's something you value as well. So, could you speak a little more to the the, the physicality of meeting a, a potential uh, startup or a, a startup founder with a potential investment opportunity? Like, what what is that? Um, what is the importance of meeting in person for you specifically? Well, you know, look, when I'm hiring or when I'm building business relationships, I'm looking largely for two things. Uh, you know, there's there's the skill set that that they have, and I'm qualified to assess some, but not others. Like I can't I can't tell you whether I'm, I'm not, I don't come from a technical background, so I can't tell you whether a an AI engineer, you know, if she's extremely talented. I I need somebody who's who's a, you know a, a very solid engineer to make that assessment before we hire. But, you know, at the end of the day, we are, we're, we're humans. I'm looking for two things when I'm, when I'm building a team, whether that's on, you know, my startup or even with, with relationships with investors, which is curiosity and integrity. Curiosity, I want to know they're curious about the world around. Do they have an innate curiosity about how things work, what other people do, you know, what makes other cultures, you know, uh, unique and interesting? And, you know, that drives a desire to solve things in a different way and, you know, find interesting pathways. The integrity comes down to, you know, is this person going to do the right thing when no one else is looking? Mm. And I think that's doable to get, you know, without meeting in person. But I think if you're going to build a tr true personal bond with employees or an investor you need to have some level of, of human interaction you need to share a meal together you need to go on a walk together and it may be sound maybe this sounds a little bit uh a little bit corny but at the end of the day you're doing business with other human beings and startups are fraught with all sorts of challenges and um twists and turns and some of what's going to make that work is is this alchemy between the team of, well, I just know that, you know, if I throw this problem up into the air, 
up into the air, you know, Aish and you know, Lisa are are, are they're just gonna they're gonna go figure it out. I don't know how, but I'm gonna sleep at night that you know you and another person are gonna go figure that out, and vice versa. And I think it's really hard to build that type of relationship uh, without some level of of kind of in person interaction. Just for the record, Lisa was a made up name. Yes, yeah, so that's right. Because <laughs> yeah. my girlfriend watches this, she's gonna ask me who is Lisa. Okay. Yes, I completely, totally made up that name. If you don't want to get into any form of trouble, uh, complete and total fiction. Thank God. Thank you. Eric. I appreciate that. Yes, uh, so I will also take a personal phone call from her and uh, and validate that as well if need be. I'm gonna send her your contact details <laughs> yeah. after this conversation. That's, the, that's right. That's our DocuSign. <laughs> So we have we've talked about kind of the two major things of startups. We talked about failure and we've talked about funding. So just stepping away from that coming to the very beginning or you know before that even are startups a recommended pathway for Gen Z instead of traditional post secondary and again one of the follow up questions will be what do you think about skill trades which is something we touched on before. So sure. You know, are startups a recommended pathway? For some, sure. don't follow the trend. Knowing what you're good at, knowing why you want to wake up every day. I, I'm a firm believer that, look, there are some people, and this is a completely okay thing to be, but some people are perfectly fine showing up and putting in their eight hours and getting fulfillment outside of what they do for a living. And that is totally fine. I think there are are also uh, a personality trait where, and I and I put myself in this bucket. My guess is you are too. What I'm doing day to day has to have some kind of cause, and sometimes it's a fight. To be honest with you, but what I mean by that is my cause, or you know, with with my current startup is Exit Guide, and that is to democratize mergers and acquisition for small business owners you know, Main Street business owners. And I have my reasons for motivating that. In some days, it's a cause because I feel very strong about empowering this, you know, kind of generation of people that own these businesses and passing them down to younger millennials and Gen Z. I, I think it's a great cause. And then other days, it's a fight because I feel like there's this very broken system and I'm fighting against the system. If you can find out what is your you know, your cause, what is it that fulfills you and gets you into, you know, some people have called it flow, but if it's being an electrician, if it is running a machine that, you know, produces um, metal fabrication, if it's being a chef, if it's an artist, uh, there's a whole world outside of tech. And so will AI have an impact? I mean, it will. But but quite frankly, when you look at some of the things that you mentioned with skill trade and Main Street businesses, it's going to have far less of an impact on those jobs. There's amazing opportunities and ways to have a very fulfilling career and quite frankly, um, without working in tech at all. So uh, everybody has their own pathway. One of the, the, the challenges, I think, is as you're younger... Are you following a pathway, whether it's coming from parents, whether it's coming from a peer group, whether it's coming from society or the community in which you're raised, which is all completely, totally, very, very, very real? Or are you following a pathway which is with your own innate drive and talents and things that you're good at? And so understanding how you learn 
understanding what are your innate skill sets and, and maybe some of the weaknesses and challenges that you have, and then trying to map a pathway, you know, for growing in a career path that is mapped to these things. I mean, that that's, that's where you got to focus. What is Exit Guide? Could you speak to sure. you know, the philosophy of your startup and, and why you're yeah. engaged in that? So, so I, you know, I spent, and as I mentioned earlier, I, I spent a long time in Silicon Valley. I've worked in startups for, for, uh, pretty much all of my career. I, you know, I, I had a, a stretch for a couple of years where I was helping venture back companies, largely brought in by investors when there was a problem. And I, I would come into companies that, you know, had overspent, they were in on money and, and maybe had some turmoil. And my job was to to assess: Is this something that you know can be fixed? And if so, how do we fix it? Or do we piece off the assets and sell those? You know, what are the ways? But it's from an investor point of view. And so, largely, two things: one is I I had access to capital to go give me breathing room to figure that out, and two, I had both a network for uh, people that were on a team or within my own you know kind of personal professional network to to access world class talent to help me kind of move through these these transactions what i learned is that when it comes to small main street businesses in north america um, a couple of things are true one is that most are are worth somewhere between 200,000 and 2 million dollars it's about 35% of gdp and there are plenty of tools that have been around for these business owners, somebody who may own a plumbing company, a retail shop, a restaurant, or a bar, or a services-based company, they can do formation of that business entity online. But when it comes to exiting, which 100% of them have to do at some point, it's very limited and very challenging for them to go figure out, what is my business worth? What are my options? How do I sell to an employee or a business partner or a family member? And the experts that that Someone like myself had when I was working for for venture back companies, it, you know, they're just they're out of reach. They're they're too expensive, and because eighty five percent of these are owned by boomers and, and Gen X, uh, you're going to see a huge surge of very real businesses come onto the market. But there really isn't necessarily a, a, a an affordable streamlined process for these business owners to kind of move through an exit process. So, you know, the, the, the quick way of saying is I, I'm, I'm bringing m and to Main Street or I'm democratizing m and for Main Street. But my, my, my mission is to really create a very simplified process for someone to exit their business, which could be anything from selling to an employee, maybe it's selling the assets and closing to finding a buyer in their local community and, and, and getting through the transaction without expensive resources um, we bring in people to help you on on demand, but you should be able to do a lot of this on your own. And what about this gets you up every day and motivates you? Like how, like why is this your passion? And what what are your thoughts around this passion? Sure. So you know, this gets back to I, I think I'm wired in a way that that other entrepreneurs, you know, probably like yourself are wired, which is. It's a cause. It's a cause and it's a fight. And it, it, it depends on the day. I can have a, you know, it can be a cause in the morning and be a fight in the afternoon. 
I, I think when I look at, at, at my career path of working with a lot of these companies in Silicon Valley, I was very fortunate. But at the end of the day, it, it is unfair that I had access to this level of talent and resources and information for uh, whereas so many real businesses don't. And so this is something that has to happen. You know, the backbone of, of the economy in North America you know, are these businesses, it's somebody who paves your driveway, it's somebody who, you know, runs the pest control business in your local community. And this is, this is driving it, but, but largely, there's an imbalance in access to information, resources and support for something that every one of these business owners has to go do. And the market opportunity, quite frankly, it's, it's, it's in excess of, of $10 trillion. And that's just demographics. You just take, well, 85% of these businesses are owned by people over the age of 45. A good chunk of them are actually owned by people over the age of, of, of 60. And so, you know, I mean, not to be morbid, but next 20 years, stuff's going to happen. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, and so they have to move out. And the question I ask myself is, well, what do you do when it's not a $10 million business that's, you know, really profitable and growing, you know, those businesses have access to, you know, bankers, M&A advisors and attorneys who can make money by billing hours against a transaction, whether they're getting paid on a percentage basis, whether they're getting paid on an hourly basis. But if you have a $400,000, uh, you know, car repair shop or pest control business, what are you going to go do? Um, you're not going to go spend, you know, $800 an hour on a lawyer and somebody who's a business broker is not going to want to sell a business that's worth $400,000 and they can sell a business that's worth 15. And so knowing that this is out of reach for literally tens of millions of people, um, it bothers me and excites me. It bothers me because I don't think it's fair. It excites me because I think that we can go solve it. We touched on being an electrician, um, as as a possible passion so what yeah. are your thoughts on skilled trades so just to paint the picture of how we got here because i was talking to you in our previous call about gen z is fundamentally unprepared to handle you know the future and, and as a using a broad uh, term um, they're not really cognizant that a lot of the jobs that they are going to be in or getting into and starting mm. their careers with are going to be automated and this is a reality. And, you know, as much as you don't like it, it's happening. Yeah. And you basically said, and I, we'll get more into it, but you said, think about skilled trades, you know. Please. Put, yes. Put an electrician on the same level as a software developer because, you know, software de being a software developer is sexy, not just um, yeah. salary, but also the title and, you know, benefits and perks that come come with it. Could you just speak more to, to that? Yeah, I'll, I'll start by saying if, if I were, uh, you know, 22, 23 years old and knowing what I know now, right? So I had all the benefit of my, inf of my, my insight. I would absolutely 100% look at learning the skill trade today. And the reason being is we know a couple of things. One is the population will continue to grow. So, you know, we're going to need more building. We're going to need to repair old buildings. We're going to need to, you know, uh, continue to grow as, as a society. And 
you, you know, AI can can replace certain elements of software engineering today, and that's only going to compound and get better. AI cannot string wire in a building. I know someone not smart out there is going to be like, well, we're going to have robots to do that. But like, yeah, but that's 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 really, really far away. That's really far away relative to other things. So one is the population is going to continue to grow. That means expansion, you know, physically and, and within the space. And all those things need plumbing. They need electricity. They need concrete. They need steel. We need, you know, you know, new ways of building that are more environmentally conscious. And and so, you know, that requires people. Two is that you're going to see the largest transfer of wealth in human history over the next 20 years. There is a sense, I'm Gen X, but between basically baby boomers and then you have Gen X sandwich in between millennials and Gen Z, you have a workforce that's coming, you know, online. Most millennials are are, are in the workforce today. And so I firmly believe that one of the greatest opportunities for Gen Z is to take on these businesses and and learn a skilled trade for a variety of reasons. One is that these jobs are necessary, but two, it's a generation that also will be able to understand, well, how will robotics and AI impact things like plumbing, electrician, you know, all sorts of, of skilled trades. I, I wouldn't ask anybody over the age of 60, right? I mean, but if you told me that that you know someone was was twenty years old today and was thinking about, well, all my friends are going off to college to get CS degrees, but I really would like to figure out how to do metal fabrication or become a welder. Be like, dude, just go become a welder. How will AI impact welding? I think it's going to be a long time. You'll come out of school. Uh, if you're going to get an associate's degree, you will come out oftentimes with a job waiting for you. If not, you know, have, have your, uh, your apprenticeship paid for by someone who's saying, I look, I I've got 20 open slots and two candidates, but you'll be prepared for advancements in technology that will change those industries in some capacity. But it, it, it's, it, look, it, it's, it's a phenomenal pathway to independent wealth. I mean, if you if you could go if you could go today if you could go get a job as an electrician uh, in a in a company that has say you know twenty to thirty employees with an owner that's over the age of fifty and walk in the door and you know maybe 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 you wait a little bit but say look my intent is to take over this business and buy this from you in ten years you will become a millionaire you just will and and you know you will that that pathway has a far, far higher degree of turning you into a millionaire than going and taking a job at Meta. But Eric, see, perceptions matter. And yeah. going and being a, an electrician is not the same as, again, being a totally get engineer it. and, you know, yeah. being on a beach in Hawaii and all I need is a laptop and a Wi-Fi connection and I can get my sure. hours of work and then, you know, shut my laptop off and be on the yeah. beach. And we talked about a reorientation that needs to happen in the minds of Gen Z on thinking about skilled trades as a career path. So how do yeah. we start this reorientation? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I, I wish I had a, a, a really solid answer. Um, I would tell, I would tell a lot of your listeners, 
look at where the layoffs are and look at where there's open jobs. Um, and, and some of that is cyclical, but um, when you look at, at um, jobs that are most likely to be replaced through AI, um, you know, I, I, it, it, it's going to have a much greater impact on jobs and technology than it is in other sectors of the economy. Uh, the the other is, you know, it, it, it's just a matter of how much control do you want to have, and you know, if if you are are, are in a skilled trade, you're going to have a much greater control over your destiny than you would be by by working for a corporation. But the other is, look, TikTok and YouTube and everything else that we have that are out there. And again, I, I grew up with all of this. Like these, this is not me saying is an old guy. These aren't like, I, I, I in some ways and from a generation where I know the founders, of a lot of these companies well before they were um, who they are today. Um, and we all came up together. I should probably be asking some of them for, for, advice <laughs> and investment that's another thing but you know I, I i've seen it in so what i what i look at is i say how you know how are you going to grow i i think the myth of being young and sitting on a beach with a laptop and a wi-fi connection i look i it'll work for some but i think what you're missing is one is fulfillment two is the hallway conversation and being around people that you're going to learn from um, I don't want to get into the debate of of going into the office and not being in the office. I think there's the it's different for every entity, and I think there's probably a, a happy medium in between for most people. But I get the reason that people like to argue about that. But what you're missing by not working with a group of people that may have 15, 20 years of experiences, you know, things that I've done over my career, which is you know, if you you and I were working, they'd be like, "Hey, I just come on in and sit in this presentation," or "Hey, I'm going to go meet with the CFO um, about something, and it's a budget that affects your team. Why don't you come on in and listen in?" And so, this whole thing of working by yourself, working remotely, uh, I get it. it there, there's there's certainly upsides to it, but there's some very dangerous downsides to it if you're under thirty. There just are, and and I don't know if that sounds. Um, you know, tough to hear people disagree, which you have every right to. But, you know, for for generation after generation after generation, you know, learning by simply, you know, a process of osmosis, just being in that environment is, is really going to be an advantage. So um, you simply can't learn how to be an electrician without watching someone doing it. I think it's extremely hard. But I do think that there's a, also a bit of a fallacy that you're going to become the most desirable person that has that opportunity and freedom to work remotely on a beach. Um, if you're driven, there's an energy you get by working with people sitting by side by side with them. So, uh, you know, I, I get it if someone was later in their career, they said, look, I live somewhere and, you know, uh, a month out of the year, I need to work remotely. But uh, if you don't want to be part of the culture and the core energy and setting the tone and the pace day to day by at least physically being together in some capacity for some period of time, uh, you know, that's a, that's a hard thing to really accept. Um, and, and, you know, I think what we're learning, though, is is other things are being automated. 
you know, do you want to look good in front of your friends or, or do you want to do something you enjoy doing and get paid extremely well for it? There's a whole lot of plumbers and electricians out there driving Porsches perfectly happy with the second home. And they probably don't care about what, you know, their friends think. And, you know, they're probably listening or watching the news and seeing, you know, medics cut yet another 10,000 jobs uh, thinking, hmm, you know, I've got four open positions. I wish some of those engineers would come over and, you know, take a couple of years and be, go through an apprenticeship program because I could keep them employed for the next 15 to 20 years, making a very, very good living. Yeah. And, you know, I, I agree with you, but it's also difficult for me to see how a transition of this magnitude would occur, you know, at all. Because again, sure. you know, remote remote work is just sexy. It just is. It, you don't have it to. Is. You don't have to um, travel uh, in the sense of like you don't have to go to work. You don't have to commute, that, which is the word I was looking for. You don't have to even dress up. You can just you know not go on video Zoom calls. Um, it, it's you get paid the same, and you know you you can take naps on your lunch break. Read that on Reddit. I haven't done that. <laughs> but, um, no, it, it's just telling a Gen Z, you know, don't go for that. Don't work from home. Don't, you know, job hop and work from home and instead become an sure. electrician or become a plumber. It just, I don't know. And maybe I'm just speaking as a, an immature Gen Z. I fully accept that. But it just doesn't seem like like a light bulb moment. You know, when I talk to Gen Z about automation and they say, okay, well, what do I do? And I tell them skilled mm -hmm. trades doesn't strike me as something that they would say, oh, they would, I feel like they would kind of lean back and, and disagree sure. and, and, you know, fidget and not want to go through that. So again, there's no question here. It, it's just. No, I look at, you know, I can't, I can't speak to it, I, I, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm not in those shoes. And, and so um, I hear you and I, I wish I had like a, um, a pithy, statement that someone say oh my gosh i never realized it but but a couple of thoughts one is look the road is long and so you know when i was a kid i i you know even in college i thought i wanted to be a lawyer and, and who knows maybe i would have been a, a halfway decent lawyer but i think about trying to be a lawyer now i'm like it sounds awful to me not because i don't respect the 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 trade but i'm like I, you know i've learned so much about myself and how i work and how i think and in, in what motivates me that I don't think I would enjoy being a lawyer. So I think, you know, when you're early, it's easy to say um, what you do or do not want to go do. And like, uh, th there's a Yiddish proverb uh, that, that I, that I love is a bit of a life phrase, which is if you want to make God laugh, just tell him your plans. And so I, I hear that with some people and they'll say, well, look, here's what I think. And I'm like, well, you know as much as you do at 23 as I did when I was 23, and I had all these plans. And then, you know, life started to, to you know, happen, and I learned a lot about myself along the way, and that dictated what I enjoy doing versus what I don't enjoy doing. So I think some of this will come down to some people may try that, and they'll find that sitting on a beach trying to work remotely is both isolating, unfulfilling. They're not learning and growing and being challenged as they would be if they were to do something else, or they're seeing that maybe. I'm an okay remote worker, but people are passing me and maybe I'm not doing what I, what I'm, you know, set up in life to go do. 
Two is I think, you know, there will be changes where um, I think those the, the speed in which jobs in the, that are remote jobs, the speed in which those jobs will be automated, replaceable, or or quite frankly, shift. So what people view is, well, it looks like this today in, in 2023. In 2025, those jobs may be vastly different. Maybe there'll be more of them, maybe there'll be fewer of them, or maybe somewhere in between they'll be very different. But we know it won't be the same. And so, um, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if what someone views today as sexy or compelling or interesting is going to change. I also see, if you follow a lot of people, you know, I'd encourage those to to get online, or, you know, onto Twitter. And there's a whole host of community and, and people that are Gen Z that, that are in SMB tech, so small to medium business technology. and um, I've met several. I know people who've left venture capital banking and technology uh, with MBAs and law degrees or great degrees in computer science from top universities, and they've gone out and bought plumbing businesses. And maybe they didn't learn the trade, but they they understand business and they're looking at getting a license so they can run these businesses. Because what they're realizing is to make VP at that company or to get that follower to, uh, level of following on on YouTube and and on TikTok. Um, and what it's going to require to kind of get that as a sustainable business or to to make partner at a, at a law firm like that's a that's a long journey i mean i'm a year or two into it and i'm past the honeymoon phase of having some of this flexibility and what i'm realizing is i'm seeing these trucks drive around my 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 community and i just talked to that owner i realized that guy's throwing off 600k a year in in income and he's looking to get out of that business hmm you know a pretty darn smart guy. Should I should I talk about potentially buying that business? So I think things will shift. Is is, is my point? Long winded way of saying it. But you know, just keep an open mind. Keep an open mind. Who knows? Who knows where this 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 journey will take you? Keep an open mind to it, um, because there are a lot of things that you can do that are very fulfilling that will um, leverage your innate talents. Yeah, I, I mean, just I guess closing the loop of the automation conversation. You know, it, it's it's a difficult. Uh, topic any way you slice it because again there is no good answer to it you know what mm -hmm. works for the advice someone would give to a nurse is going to be different to a, a warehouse worker is going to be different to a software engineer and fundamentally we don't have an answer to what happens when a large portion of the labor force um, of, of the workforce is shifted out completely we don't have an answer to that. Some people say UBI or GLI, uh, guaranteed livable income. Some people say NIT, negative income tax. Some people go for more socialist or communistic uh, solution, which is um, like subsidize healthcare and education and, and groceries and all of that. But fundamentally, just there is no good solution right now. And that's why having these conversations is so important because we need to find a solution before this happens. And believe me, it is happening right now as we speak. It is. And again, if you're not cognizant about it, if you're not thinking about it, if you're not wondering how your job and your career path is going to be affected by these technologies, you are going to be left behind. There's no other way to put it. That's the harsh reality. Yeah. 
I, I, I would I would add one thing because I, I do worry about you know, I have kids that are twenty four and twenty two. And I and I, I, I was very fortunate to get into the internet space before it was a thing and, and I've had ups and downs with that. What I know though is um regardless of what gets automated, maybe we can get to some form of a uh, universal basic income, whatever it may be. I, I'm not smart enough to figure that out. What I know though, is we are designed to work and we are designed to gain fulfillment through serving others in some capacity and, and doing something day to day, even if you had income flowing in, even if I today, let's just say somebody just came in and Bill Gates just called me. I'm just, I'm just, just going to wire a billion dollars into your account. And if he's listening to this, uh, you know, Bill, send me a DM on Twitter. I will, you know, get you my, my, my account details. Loop me uh, on this deal as well. Yeah. 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 And I used to, like I said, two for one. I'll even split the billion with you. Uh, I still would have to do something every day. It's not like I could sit and, you know, futz around and watch videos or do like work. Like I, I, I'd, I'd want to do something. I'd want another cause. I'd want another thing. Maybe it's ending homelessness. Maybe it's something else. I don't know. But like, it's still work. I still have to go do something. And, you know, I, look, I, I think the whole thing, and you, you probably have heard this, but this whole thing of, you know, find your passion and never work a day in your life. That's, that's total bullshit. Like, it, find something that you're good at, that the world values, get paid for it, and you know, work is a part of and a facet of your life as is socializing with friends and family and loving others and all those other things that go into making this human. But fundamentally, you got to find something that that is interesting and compelling, that is a craft and, and is going to be work. So regardless of where we end up on this thing, and again, I, I'm not smart enough to figure that out, you still have to find something. So don't do what the world tells you to do. Do what you are designed to go do. If that's working with your hands, awesome. If that's working with a laptop, great. If it's working with a paintbrush, fantastic. Um, go figure those, those things out and, and embrace your, your ability to kind of find something that leverages it. And it, it is work. It isn't always going to be this magical thing. Sure. No, beautifully said. Um, I guess getting back to the topic of startups and entrepreneurship, how do you think Gen Z should think differently about being entrepreneurs? You know think differently to the millennials or to Gen X or the baby boomers? You know, starting a startup in the technology space has never been easier. And, and I think that's a good thing. And it's, it's also potentially a bit of a, a, a danger. Um, just because you can, doesn't mean you should. So Gen Z is different than Gen X for sure. Um, and, and even millennials and that, because the barrier is relatively low, you need to really ask yourself, why you? Why am I doing this? Am I doing it because getting it out of the gate is easy? Or am I get doing this because something bigger, right? Is this a cause or is this a purpose that I can get behind? So I think both the combination of the, the ease of, of, of building something, creating something, is is relatively low and affordable and there's probably some type of uh you know social feedback that you get that that provides a little bit of a dopamine hit if you launch something and everybody yay um but really ask yourself it's more important than ever why you why now 
And is, is this something that you feel is a purpose worth really putting your time and money and effort into? Um, if it's not, but it's too easy to start, eh, it's going to be hard. I mean, either it's not going to you know have the success and you're going to say, okay, what did I just do with the past two years of my life? Or um, maybe it's something that, you know, you kind of get into and now it's more of a burden than it is something that excites you every day. Um, there's plenty of people that have started something where they're like, I, I don't know how do I get out of this because I've got enough customers that I kind of pay my bills, but I, you know, I really don't like doing this. And so no one wants to buy it because it's not, I'm the business. So, you know, I think Gen Z really has to take a look at it, it, you know, these kind of really important philosophical questions about starting a startup um, because of what's available them to get it going that was simply didn't exist 20 years ago, much less five years ago. So I, I figured out why me. I figured out why now. What skills and traits must I have in order to be successful in a startup? Well, you know, don't let not knowing what you're doing stop you. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, it's I, I, but it's important. Sorry. Well, yeah, and look, I, I have not been qualified for for any job I've had over the past twenty years. I mean, who the heck hires a B minus journalism major to become CEO of a tech startup in Silicon Valley? Like, makes no sense. Um, but you know, I was very fortunate to you know find myself in situations, and I had to earn my way into them, and I had to kind of get in the door where I stepped in way outside my comfort zone. I just, you know, I mean, it was a struggle, and still is today, but. Move past look, you know, being afraid of looking like an idiot or being being afraid of failure. Um, you, you know, you are more equipped than you think. And so, what skills do you need? Look, early on, no one wants to talk to you, and you know, people will give you, you know, hey, I think what you're doing is awesome. Like it, it it'll it, people will encourage you, but not everybody's going to stand by you. So you're going to need to figure some of these things out. Um, you know, so. Start with what's with what's within your control, and and continue to make incremental progress each and every day. Um, the skills, like you can beg, borrow, and steal. We're in a very different environment where you don't have to find somebody who's you know a twenty minute commute from you. You can find somebody in Nigeria or in Iceland or Australia, and and you know start to kind of build that way. Um, so. You know, eventually, though, you're going to learn what's your craft and what are the things that you're really good at and what are the things that you need to outsource. But don't let any of that stop you from getting getting out of the gate. Sure, sure. I, there's a bunch of people close to me who suffer from this. I don't know if it's a, a syndrome or just a facet of being human that you, they don't feel qualified um, to apply to any job, let alone a job. Mm. What advice would you give to them? Is it just, you know, fuck it and go for it? Or is it something else? Well, I'd want to know why they don't feel qualified. If there's something deeper there that maybe they're looking at the wrong job would be my first question. Like if they're saying like, I just, I'm not qualified, like, okay, let's, let's unpack that. I mean, is it, why do you think that is? And, and is it because your parents thought that you should be a software engineer, you should be an attorney or you should be this and okay that's not going to go away like if if you're if you're 
applying to jobs that, that, that you don't want or you don't feel like map to who you are as a person, that's a whole different set of issues and you need to go address that. Yeah. Um, but if it, if it's, if, if it is something that you're like, no, I always wanted to do this and go do this, then yeah, I, I do think it's a, Hey, look, um, the, the, the secret, which, you know, you, you do learn, um, a lot of people don't know what they're doing. Um, you know, again, people are like, how'd you get to that? I'm like, I, again, I, I, I made a whole bunch of mistakes. Um, look, if I can figure this stuff out, you can, um, I have tremendous respect for people who say, oh man, I did that. And it just, I mean, it blew up in my face, but I did get up and I, I went back at, went back at it. Last thing I need when somebody comes in the door is to tell me how accomplished they are or where they went to school 10 years ago or how smart they were, you know, whatever. I'm like, like I need to know today, right? Back to what, what I look for when I hire is integrity and curiosity. If you're curious, even if you had success academically or professionally, you're going to seek out the next challenge or the next opportunity that's going to test you. And we all go through that. And I recognize that when I see that in younger people as well, which is they don't bring ego. They bring curiosity to the table every day. They're hungry to learn. They're hungry to change. They're hungry, hungry to interact with people that are different from them, come from different backgrounds, have different perspectives. How do we move through and solve this bigger, greater issue and take advantage of this bigger, greater opportunity? Uh, so yeah, you need, you need to get, you need to get past it. Um, and it's not an easy thing to go do, but you're way, way more, you're way more capable than you think you are. It's good to hear. It's, it's uh, not many people think like that. Everybody has their insecurities and their anxieties, but hearing from someone as accomplished as you are that that's all BS and that they should just go for it. And they have I, I, I will say this. Um, I, I, I truly believe this. Uh, part of, part of, of what I've, uh, whether you call it an accomplishment or whatever it may be, but I will say um, a lot of us, but my, I'll, I'll say this for myself. I was smart enough to get into the room and too dumb to realize I shouldn't be there. And by that, I mean, look, look, if if you paint this picture of everybody you know who you know you're following has these things figured out or that they're smarter than you you really are fooling yourself and so you know i had the chance to be in a lot of different rooms with a lot of renowned people and what i realize is yeah some are truly unique and, and gifted but for the most part you know like me, they caught a couple of breaks. They ran through a couple of doors. They had to break into a couple of windows. I mean, like you had to just kind of move your way through. And as as we as a society start to open up and 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 be more open minded about people from different backgrounds, ethnicities, and cultures, and all these other things, you know, it can and does and should create a more competitive field. And so you either embrace that or you you look at that as a negative, but um, the world's going to continue to grow and it's going to continue to move forward. There's plenty of opportunities that are opening up each and every day. Some will die off, but, you know, new ones will come online. But, um, you know, curiosity will carry you very, very far in life. Don't be afraid of being qualified. Um, you know, and, and I'll close with this. Um, it's the inverse. I think Warren Buffett, but I'm not sure. Like you know, if you don't know who the idiot in the room, it's you. 
what I tell people is if you find yourself as the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Exactly. Just get into a room where, you know, people are nice, they're kind, and if you feel like you're the dumbest person in the room, stay in that room. Not knowing is also a strength in a sense. Absolutely. I have a thing that I, I my kids to this day will tell, which is, um, I learned this in my career and I said, uh, and I've heard them even say it back, which is great because they're young adults now. The, the phrase, I don't know, is always okay to say as long as it's followed by the word but and then something else. I don't know, but I'm willing to learn. I don't know, but I'll figure it out. I don't know, but I think so-and-so and so-and-so and I can go figure this thing out. If you just say, I don't know, well, then it kind of falls there. And if you say, I don't know, but, and then you blame something or you attribute it to something that's beyond your control, completely and totally not helpful. But taking ownership and demonstrating the curiosity and the drive to go figure something out is great. So I don't know, but is... Uh, almost a career changing uh, mantra that 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 people can implement is just say, I don't know, but I can figure out how to become, you know, better at that, or I don't know, but I can learn that skill. For sure, it, it makes you proactive rather than reactive. Completely, and that's what leaders look for. Absolutely, so what's what leaders look for, which is, I'm not looking for somebody who's qualified to do the job today. I'm just looking for somebody who is going to be qualified to do the job tomorrow. And if you're telling me you need to fall back on things you did five, 10 years ago, maybe that's helpful and it's informative, but, you know, are you willing to adapt and change with the kind of ever-changing environment they're in? And are you willing to attract and empower people who have that same level of curiosity and drive? So I figured out why me and why now I'm, you know, starting a startup, but what is the harsh reality of startup success in uh, by your standards, by what you've seen, uh, what would you say to a Gen Z who's listened to this and, you know, has taken notes, but what, what would you tell them is just, like, you need to focus on this and, you know, this is the, the reality of the very, this is the marginal reality, uh, a reality for the minority of successful people. You know, what would you say to them? It's temporary and it's not life fulfilling. You know, I've known people who have made tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and you realize, you know, your generation hears this, which is no one wants to hear somebody, which is, I made a hundred million dollars because I started Lycos and I don't know who started Lycos, but like probably never heard of the company, but like geos, like one is it's temporary. So if you started something and saw wild success and that's what you're pinning, you know, all of your credentials on, um, you know, the world is, is not a, a, a very kind place is, you know, we're all going to move past that. So even if you still have a hundred million dollars in the bank, no one cares about this thing that effectively is outdated. But the more important question, the more important reality is you need to have things. And this, why I, I, at the top of this conversation said, you know, your, your startup doesn't, isn't your identity. 
and and it can't be the thing that that costs you your your relationships and your mental health. Um, so, you know, if you have success, what are you going to do with it? And if you don't have relationships and people that you can be vulnerable with, um, I'm not sure that's success. There's a lot of people online that are very famous. Um, I'm not sure if they're really good friends. Um, are they empowering their communities? Are they um, have healthy relationships with, you know, siblings, parents, spouses, partners, kids? Um, there's a lot of rich disasters out there. Speaking of mental health, this is one of the last questions, but we touched on, uh, you've mentioned it at least twice on this podcast where when you see all of your friends get CS degrees, that can kind of make you anxious because Mm -hmm. you start wondering, what am I doing here? Everybody's moving past me. It's like you're just standing and then everybody else is running. So. And this is just one example, but mental health in the startup space is a very, very significant factor on whether you're successful or not. How do you manage your mental health when you're starting a startup, when you're in a startup? What what should you look out for? How do you know when to take a break? Is it just, as, as you touched on, you know, are your relationships faltering or is there are there precursors to this that you can mention or talk about? I think regardless of what industry you're in, you know, this isn't my saying, but it's a great one, which is there's two types of people in the world, those who are in therapy and those who should be. Um, It's like going to the dentist, man. I mean, you know, people are like, well, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm like, I don't have any cavities, but it's I still go to the dentist twice a year and get a a, a cleaning and and have a checkup. Um, I still go to the doctor and, um, you know, get a checkup just to kind of what, what am I? What, what may exist that, that I'm not seeing? Um, so in general, mental health is a proactive thing that you need to, 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 to be on top of, just like you would with any other parts of your physical health. You know, as far as, you know, you know if, you're, if you're in it and you're wondering whether, you know, you're suffering from burnout or whether it's taking a toll on your mental health, uh, I, that's where I go back to. Um, I like, I think this whole thing of sometimes people say community is everything. I, th- I think when you overuse certain terms, it, 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 it loses its value and its meaning. But I do think, um, having two different types of communities, one is, you know, people who are in your journey and can share that, whether it's other founders, whatever it may be, my goodness, please find something that's outside of this world. Um, you know, I joined the local chamber of commerce here in, in Austin and and on Friday night, you know, I went to an event. And what I love about it is no one there's in tech. They work at banks, they run retail businesses, service-based businesses. And and when we meet, you know, it's great because no one like no one there cares about raising money from venture capital or doing this or doing like it just and so it it, it takes me out of my head and in that world. So, you know, having a, a you know, a community of people that you know, share your journey, but also w- they could be something that's at a church or a mosque or a synagogue or 
a, you know, volunteer, you know, at a, at a food bank or something like that. Get something that is completely and totally out of the world in which you operate in. Because if you're going to think about this thing 24 by 7, 7 days a week, 365, yeah, you, you will eventually break. And one of the ways that you can break is, is one, to unload with people who understand it, but also get your brain out of it completely and totally in something that gives to other people. And like I said, I mean, I, you know, I, I would say a part of this group with, with this, this chamber of commerce, I'd be shocked if 10% even know what the heck I do for a living. And I love it. I love it. I love it. Just because it's like, they don't care. They're just like, Oh, how's your thing going, man. Right. And sometimes they'll ask me a question like, you know, internet stuff like, Hey, I'm trying to do this thing with my email marketing. Like, and I'm like, yeah, I know a guy I can help you with that. You know? And then I learn about their business and I'm like, my goodness, these people like, like make a real living. They're, they're paying their mortgages. They're doing really well. They're successful and they're completely and totally, you know, out of my space. And I learn something, you know, almost every time that I talk to them about business. So it's important what you said, you know, the, uh, the, the therapy, um, little tidbit because everybody's so obsessed with physical health and going to the gym, you know, at least five times a week and, you know, yeah. push, pull, legs and all of that. But no one ever yeah. talks about mental health. Like yeah. what are you doing for your mental health every day? And even even more so, like, you have rest days in the gym. Have a rest days for your regular life. Like meditate. Fifteen minutes of green space. There are so many scientific articles that show that that's beneficial take walks you know that's right have some kind of social contact call a friend yes you know it's it, it seems simple it seems duh but it's surprising and striking how many people don't do this you know people don't realize that spending five hours a day on youtube or scrolling through reddit or scrolling through tiktok and instagram well, number one, scrolling through all of these things, you're degrading your your focus and attention, which terrible for you. It's horrible. Yeah. But number two, it's like you're getting mental fatigue. <laughs> you have to you have to realize that using these platforms, which are addicting because billions of dollars have been put into these platforms to make That's right. them addicting. You know. Yeah. You have to you have to understand the forces that are. Um, conspiring for your attention, for your focus, for your money, for your time and your data. That's and all right. Of this. You, know, you have to realize this because it all plays a significant uh, role in how your mental health functions, how your mind functions. Yeah, we, you know, look, the, the, the recent disaster with uh, the submarine that, that, you know, is off the coast of, of, U.S. Canada, um, and, and I, again, I'm not going to weigh in on that. But w one of the things that came up uh, was was how little we know about the ocean floor. We know more about Mars than we do, you know, what's beneath us in the ocean. We know a lot more about physical health than we do mental health in the brain. But there are some things that we know, which is um, if you don't take care of it, you know. There's there's likely negative consequences, and some of that is physiological. Exercise absolutely helps. You know, uh, you know, illegal drugs, illicit drugs can can have a negative impact. You know, alcohol, other things. But we also know what can benefit from it. And 
um, the challenges is that because it doesn't manifest itself physically, it's not like a wound where somebody could come in and be like, hey, she, like you've got this gaping wound on your arm, like you've got to go get that cleaned out and go to a doctor. You would never think about ignoring that. Um, so, you know, this whole thing of hustle culture and all this other stuff, I'll just tell you somebody who's been around for a long time and been through all this, it's all total, complete and total bullshit. Um, you know, find your passion over work that bullshit, like, you know, um, work is hard, you know, regardless of whether you're working a W2 job or whether you're doing a startup, it doesn't define you. And if you're going to take care of yourself physically, you should be putting in, you know, just as many hours as to what's taking care of yourself mentally and getting professional help, even when things aren't in a crisis. Just like we go to the dentist and get checkups, just like we go get a physical every so often. Um, you know, I wish, you know, you're in Canada, I'm in the U.S., but like, you know, I wish U.S. healthcare companies would pay for at least, you know, four therapy sessions a year, just like dental plans. You know, you, you know, you get two checkups a year, but again, that's a whole nother topic. But um, if you have the ability, both in terms of financially as well as is um, within your community, um, do that, um, yeah. you know, because it's it's important. But get outside of your own head. Because one thing people don't realize is depression or depression-like symptoms, they build in the background. They, they, they do. accumulate like dust. You're not yeah. dusting your counter. It's going to eventually... It's, it's going to be, you know, horrible for you. Yeah. And then, you know, you're, you're coughing for some reason because you haven't dusted your countertops. Yeah. It's, it's a very similar thing where if you're not paying attention to the forces um, that you're consuming on a daily basis, you know, people don't realize that they, they understand the notion of you are who you hang out with or you are the five people who you hang out with as an aggregate but they don't abstract that out onto social media. So you're constantly consuming people, you know, you know, maybe there's a negative influencer or, you know, a negative personality in the social media space. I'm not going to exactly say the name because I don't want to give more traffic to that person, but, but we, we all know who we're talking about. But if you're constantly consuming these people, you are going to be negatively affected by it. Yeah. You have to realize that. It's like social media is becoming, like, uh, I, I forget where, where I heard this quote, but it used to be that social media and the internet is what you used to do to escape life, but now life is what you do to escape social media and the internet. <laughs> yeah, that is true. That is it's, true. Yeah. It's, it's so ingrained. And so if you're not checking up on yourself right? and mm. realizing what you're consuming like go through your search history go through your youtube watch history and then imagine doing that for hours a day for the next yeah. months and weeks you know it's I, I think there's three things you can fill a feed with sure. knowledge positive nonsense and negative nonsense yeah. and i think all too often we let the algorithm fill our feed with the negative nonsense well, because people don't realize that that's what gets clicks. It doesn't. That's right. It doesn't, you know, yeah. ironically click in their minds that, you know, the most outraging, the most misogynistic, the most homophobic, that's right. the most, you know, absurd 
content is what goes viral and why does it go yeah. viral because everybody's responding to the outrage outrage is what gets clicks and so if you're yeah. constantly on these platforms and all you're consuming is outrage well now it makes sense why all of these platforms are just suddenly riddled with with negative nonsense to use your words yeah but you need, you Look, need to have so much uh, understanding in order to make these um in order to have these understandings, please go ahead. There, 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 there are a lot of people out there. If you seek them out, there are a lot of people that are creating um, great content that teaches you something. I've learned a lot about you know clean eating from various people, and um, you know generally they're doctors, nutritionists, you know experts in the field, and they're 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 yeah are they trying to build a brand yes but they're not trying to shill something they're credentialed they know what they're talking about use common sense and so um you know all sorts of things you can learn about that are that are constructive um when i mean positive nonsense for me you know a little bit of sports um you know cooking in and then there's just kind of funny stuff that that doesn't it's it's never laughing at someone it's always something that is more positive Negative nonsense tends to be hurtful. It tends to be inflammatory. It tends to be misleading. It tends to create humor at someone else's expense. Um, and, and just proactively remove that. I think it's, it, look, this, this takes 15 minutes to go through, you know, whatever platform you're on and curate and add, you know, five to 10 new, follows that are going to educate you and or provide and i like to think i'm i'm 70 knowledge and 30 percent positive nonsense whether that's totally accurate or not but that's what i strive for and, you know people like andrew huberman people like tim ferris people like dr uh people like Dr. Peter Atia, Dr. Andrew Huberman, Dr. Lex Friedman, all of these, it, just subscribe to them, follow them, and then consume only their content for like six months and then watch how your mind changes. Watch. Yeah. And, and these are people that I follow. I, I, I also have added, um, you know, uh, people who uh, are, are also, look at Yo-Yo Ma um, is, is an amazing follow. If, if, He's a you know world-renowned cellist. He's also kind of a, a fine, interesting dude. But he he's you know I've I've seen videos of him, especially during the pandemic. But I've seen videos of him where he takes his cello out and he's playing in a field with somebody who's playing the bagpipes or doing something phenomenally interesting. Um, you know, so find some of these niche things. I mean, I happen to love different types of music, and so I follow certain musicians, not because they want to become a social media personality, but maybe they're more a little more. You know whether they're into bluegrass or whether they're into, uh, you know, teaching people about uh, African American culture and in in history, you know, through music and and how that emerged, you know, through a horrific time period. But they're using that as a way to engage people, you know, around the country, around the world. There's a lot of niche stuff that's out there. You just have to go seek it out. It's not hard to find. Um, and, and it doesn't always have to be high intellect. It can be other things that just challenge your thinking. I was just watching something last night that was a famous, you know, organist out of London who, you know, has developed this massive following online and people are going to say, who is it? Now I can't remember. 
but you know, she's she's playing this insane instrument so well and teaching people about it, and never intended to become a a huge creator on these platforms, but she is, and she gets this joy of being this kind of classically trained organist who's playing Bach on a you know organ that has something like. 2000 pipes or something you know insane like that and it's absolutely stunningly beautiful but it's very pure in terms of what she's trying to bring to the world so yeah i i agree with you you know follow fill it up with some knowledge fill it up with some fun nonsense and and avoid the negative yeah it's easy to think that you'll eventually go and start consuming knowledge or positive nonsense. But you also have to realize that the information supply and the content supply on any given platform is literally endless. You will never get through your, your feed. <laughs> yeah. Endless scroll. Yeah. You'll never get through all the videos on YouTube. So if the supply is endless, you might as well endless, endlessly consume knowledge, you know, yeah. things that are going to benefit your life. But yeah. one thing I, I noticed is that you talk a lot about music, you know, the organ, the cello. What, what is What has music done in your life and what does music mean to you? It means a lot. I, you know, I, I, I love everything from, you know, punk to classical to jazz um, and house music. Uh, you know, music, and not all, but most, Music is an expression of who we are. So, you know, it's, a, it's an art form. And um, I think it's a way to, to really understand the human condition. I think it's a way to understand someone's worldview. Um, you know, if you see a painting, you don't understand it. Read about it or ask the artist if you have the opportunity to do that. Um, I'm a, a big foodie. I love to cook. But what I also firmly believe is food is one of the, 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 the best connectors of us um, even if you find somebody who maybe on paper you would have every difference in the world and every reason to have some animosity, you ask them about their food, you know, is a gateway to learning about their culture and, and to explore that. So, yeah, I mean, music for me is is something that I listen to every day. I listen to a lot of classes. The music as an ADHD adult. It's it's easy for me to get distracted. So I put these headphones on. I have a lot of classical music playing in the background. allows me to focus. Who are your artists? Uh, as far as composers, um, you know, I actually love Franz Liszt. I love Rachmaninoff. Um, you know, Debussy. You know, uh, you know Mozart and Beethoven, and some of the others are are fantastic. Um, I'm always huge Marvel from a performance standpoint. And when Marcellus, who who is from a famous jazz family in the U.S., and he's you know performs a lot of classical music, you know, for the trumpet, but he's also the leader of of uh, Lincoln Center for Jazz, and so I, he's just somebody that I marvel at, and, and maybe a musician will say actually across being able to do jazz at that level in classical maybe isn't that hard for somebody, but I, I look at that I'm like I even, couldn't even do one of those, um, you know. So there there's a lot of 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 great stuff out there, and you know supporting uh, local classical music stations is is something that I you know I like to do and would encourage other people to do. Um, in, in jazz is fantastic. Jazz is fantastic, and I want to give one plug. Uh, I I follow these guys uh, on on Instagram, uh, Black Violin, and it's two classically tr trained African American 
guys. I think they're out of Philadelphia, maybe wrong. Um, but they they do these like concerts that are just like, you know, pop concerts almost, like in terms of the energy and the setup. And they're out and they're bringing classical music, but then they infuse it with hip hop at times. And they're bringing it to a generation uh, in, in part of the society that normally you wouldn't associate with with classical music. Um, follow these guys. They're just like, you know, when you just look at somebody and you're like, yay on like that makes me feel great about society. Like these two guys are just freaking awesome. Hundred yeah. percent. We'll link to them in the description. So yeah, there's an, there's an yeah. easy link for people to to check them out. Um, cool. Europe, we've been going for almost two hours. So yeah, I'll ask you. You have to cut this back. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, it's good. We've, we've gotten through so much great interesting and important content um so this is the gen z diplomat podcast so what advice do you have for gen z don't lose hope and and ignore what's out there it's easy to amplify the negative um the world is a better place than what media is telling you it's fantastic yeah it's easy to lose sight of that so i know always remembering that write a note put it on your wall yep. whatever it absolutely is. eric this has been a fantastic conversation i enjoyed it thank you for your time and the opportunity fantastic is an understatement so thank you for being here what where can we find you on in cyberspace uh, you can find me, you can, it's eric grafstrom and the last name is g-r-a-f like frank and then strum eric grafstrom dot uh, com or on LinkedIn, and uh, if you want to follow me or try to connect with me on LinkedIn, please you know mention Gen Z Diplomat Podcast. Um, be great. I'd love to 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 connect with people who are are part of this audience and and try to make time and see if I can be of help to you. Fantastic, and we'll make sure to link uh, to all of your social uh, socials in the description as well. Once again, Eric, thank you so Very much good. for being here. You bet. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gen Z Diplomat Podcast. To support it, please subscribe to our YouTube channel, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and follow our Spotify page. Please check out Eric's links in the show notes. That is the best way to support our guest for being on this program. As always, the more we talk about what future we want, the more likely we are to build a future that we deserve. Thank you for listening to this episode with Eric Grafstrom. Please check out our other episodes, which are linked in the description. And I'll see you again for future editions of the Gen Z Diplomat Podcast.